Hi, I'm Hattie Willis and welcome to Venture Out, the podcast where we geek out on exciting new business models and hear the stories of the incredible founders making them happen. So welcome to this next podcast. My name is Hattie Willis and I'm an associate principal at Rainmaking Venture Studio. And I essentially am starting this series because I'm a huge geek on business model innovation and I'm always personally on the lookout for startups and founders who really inspire me. And today I'm definitely with an inspiring founder with Matt Mika. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Happy to hear that I'm, I'm somewhat inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So Matt and I met last year, almost exactly a year ago, at Tech Barbecue. And in the course of a dinner, you got me excited about your startups you'd run before, which are obviously Meetup and Bark as well, most recently. And you also were speaking at Tech Barbecue on the topic I'll get it wrong, but it was something like how to learn about customers from a pig. Something right? like, yeah, yeah. I think it was what a pig taught me about serving customers or something like that. Yeah. And that's great. I'm going to ask the story again later. Obviously, Matt, you've done this more than once. So you are the definition of a serially successful entrepreneur, which is, is quite rare. And also probably the most reluctant serial entrepreneur I've ever met. So <laughs> you true. The second startup, Bark, it was kind of begrudging. And we'll, we'll come on to the story of how you did it and why you felt you had to do another startup, even though you really uh, didn't necessarily want to. But just before we dive into that, Matt founded Meetup in 2001. For anyone who doesn't know Meetup, it's a site to organize events with people who you may not otherwise know. So it's a massive community builder. And it's one that grew incredibly fast. I think you got to something like 56,000 users in the first few months, which is incredible. And then Matt left in 2007, but later on, uh, Meetup was acquired by WeWork for $156 million. And then most recently, Matt's founded and was CEO and is now executive chairman of BarkBox, which launched in January 2012, an incredibly successful company. Uh, they actually reached profitability in 2017, having sold more than 50 million products. And they've raised $81.7 million in funding so far and have valued around $200 million, according to the internet. Matt, don't worry, I won't ask you for the exact figure. <laughs> and then recently, Matt's made the move to executive chairman there. So Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So let's start with Meetup. When you first told me the story, I was really surprised to hear that it came out of the aftermath of 9-11. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it did. There were a couple of things that happened where I was working in my first failed startup, at the time, <laughs> learning in an 18-month period, a lot of hard lessons. At the same time, my co-founder was also working in a challenge startup of his own. And I think 9-11 was a sort of a reflective moment for everyone to say, am I really working on the thing I should be right now? Or is it time to change course? And for both of us, it was. We didn't know what that meant, but it it meant something different. So we started to spend a lot of time together talking about where we could go, what we could do. There was definitely a change in New York City at the time where people were talking to each other, which was unusual for New York. Um, it's very fast paced. Usually you've got just a second, if that, to connect with someone, but then they're moving on. They're, they're going too fast. This was a moment where New York slowed down and people started to ask, how are you doing? And really cared what the answer was. They wanted to hear it and they wanted to share with you. And we saw firsthand what happened when people connected with their neighbors. And so we had this notion of how do we connect neighbors to each other around the world? 
And how do we do that around your interests and break down some of those walls that maybe the internet has built up of pushing us into our homes <laughs> more so this year and separating us from our neighbors. And I think when we don't talk to each other, then we lose trust and we, we sort of think the worst of the people that we don't really know. So we were trying to create social mechanisms to say it's okay to meet strangers and get to know those people. You'll find really great things happen when you do. I love that. And so that was the genesis of the idea. And when you had it, did it come in the form it is now or how has it evolved? Oh, no. <laughs> no, uh, there are some common elements, but we needed something to jumpstart it, to get people to actually take a leap. So the first thing was just having a, a, a structure to it, where at the time when we started this, the internet was a scary place where people thought it was. And you had a lot of, you know, those Dateline NBC shows saying, don't let your kids near the internet. There are kid snatchers out there who will take them and all these scary people who, who are there. And the people on the internet are people. That tends to be the way it is. They're, they're not scary. Generally, we find that people are good. But there was a lot of myths that had to be broken down. And so we needed to create a structure around it that made it seem normal and safe and like an okay thing to do. And we had to get people excited about it and moving in mass so we were trying to create like momentum in a social network where you need daily ongoing momentum you need network effects but also trying to do it locally and then topically locally so we made the, the challenge that much harder so we initially created a bit of a game is probably the wrong word but but a holiday around every topic so we would say this thursday september 23rd 7 p.m everywhere is International Knitting Meetup Day. So join your fellow knitters and you would come to knitting.meetup.com and you would be presented with, here are three places where this could happen. You can vote where you want it to be. People would vote and we'd say, okay, the vote says it's at Starbucks at 44th Street or whatever and people would show up. There was no organizer to this. There was no agenda to this. It was just Okay, there are enough of you who said yes, so show up here. Really, really taking a leap of faith, <laughs> looking back on it. But the way it works today has evolved in so many ways. We learned a lot from that start, but we did get the, the initial spark and momentum to get it going. And I think that's what's so interesting is obviously it's a marketplace model. So on today's version, you have the organizers who kind of run the events, and then you have the, the attendees. And then you have the venues, which are less important now than I guess they were at the beginning, because at the beginning, you were very much acting the part of the organizer. Yes. <laughs> and originally, you, you charged venues, didn't you? But you then pivoted the model to charge organizers. Right. That was the, the initial idea was to say to venues, we're, we're internet guys. So we thought, like, if we send traffic to your store, you'll appreciate that. And then you'll pay us for that. So that was the idea. We were going to try to bring sort of a, a per action model to the real world and say, if we send 100,000 people through your doors, why don't you pay us a dollar per person, pay us $100,000, and that'd be great. Uh, we learned that that was much harder to do than, uh, than it sounds. First off, business owners aren't used to that model or they weren't at the time. It was a very foreign concept for them to get their minds around their payment issues. We had this sort of hostage approach to sales, which we learned very quickly it didn't work. So there was one meetup that we had scheduled in New York. It was about 100 people. 
good amount of people. And we sent them to a Barnes and Noble on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock. And our very smart plan was to call Barnes and Noble the next day and say, did you see all those people that came in last night? We did that and we can keep doing it for you. You just have to pay us. So we called them and we said all of that. And they said, you're the ones who sent those people. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> and so we're like, we didn't have staff for it. We didn't have security. All of a sudden they're looking for places to meet. We weren't organized or ready for this at all. Don't do that. So our, our little plan didn't work out so well. What's interesting is that you found a load of people who did care and that was on the attendee side and you doubled down there and scrapped the venues and then moved to actually the people who care and people who are willing to pay are the ones going to the events and then running the events. Yeah, painful transition, but certainly the right one and it's worked out very well. So I used to teach Lean Startup and I think a lot of people who hear Lean Startup, it's just a buzzword, it's like a phrase. But actually, you're one of the entrepreneurs that when I meet and talk to, you've tested things so rapidly by not building stuff. You make the events yourself, right? We're going to make today knitting day. And you kind of concierge, you do the work behind the scenes so that the attendee gets the real experience, but you don't yet have the full platform. Right. And we did that with BarkBox as well, where it was just a concept, kind of a Friday afternoon, fun idea between my co-founder and, and I. And it's, it's funny, you can walk around and you can talk to people about that and ask them what they think. The, the truth is people will lie to you. Friends will lie to you. You'll very rarely find someone who you share an idea with and they say, oh, that's a terrible idea. I mean, who does that? So we very quickly built just basically a landing page that said, here's what it looks like. Here's the concept. I started to show people that and say, what do you think? And they're like, oh, I, I like that. Tell me when it's live and I'll buy it. And I heard that enough times in a couple of weeks where I started to carry a square with me. And when someone would say, tell me when it's live and I'll buy it, I'd take out the square, I'd put it in my phone and I'd say, it's live, swipe your card. And then you start to get real feedback and yeah. you get like, oh, well, I mean, I don't even have a dog or I mean, it's good for other people, but my dog doesn't really love toys or anything. So uh, you get the questions like, well, is everything made in the US or where, where are the product? You, re you actually get to it when you put people on the spot to hand over at the time, $25. They start to ask the real questions and inform the product more and more. And we didn't have to build a thing. This is music to my ears. I used to try and teach these examples, the idea that actually talking to people, they will inherently want to compliment you. We're, we're humans. We're nice people. We don't want to shoot down someone's dream. But actually, until you make them give you a real commitment. There's, you, there's no upside to being a jerk about someone's idea. Um, yeah. Or one of my favorites is I'll have people come to me and say, should I invest in this company? Like, there's, no, there's no upside to me saying no. I mean, if I, if I say no, and it turns out to be Airbnb, yeah. you're going to remember I said no and yeah. talk you out of it. If I say no and you go ahead and invest, you're the genius who did it. And you'll never, you'll never credit me. Or if I say yes, it was your idea all along. So, <laughs> Okay, so I won't be asking for investment advice at the end. No, of no, just, hey, if you believe in it, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so Meetup was incredibly successful at growing fast. Was there anything else that you did that you attribute that really fast growth to at the beginning? That dynamic of speaking to each individual community, it was somewhat 
on purpose, but we had a lot of mistaken thoughts of, you know, the knitters of the world saying, I'm so glad you built this for us. <laughs> uh, like they thought there was a knitter at art building this thing. And it was a both a good thing and a bad thing where they had no concept of the whole universe of meetup. They just thought a knitter built this in their free time times 4,000 interests. So we constructed something that it, it spoke to individuals and their interests in a really powerful way. And then you get those network effects and you get people wanting to tell other people about it. Handing it over to the organizer just accelerated that. It was like, now I've got skin in the game and now I want to get a lot of Dungeons and Dragons players here on Friday night. That really propels it when people have that social object to connect around and you've given them the freedom to, to spread it, to talk about whatever nerdy thing it is they're interested in, then they go. I mean, we certainly made mistakes. Like some of our early ideas for topics, we thought topics would be, or popular topics would be like New York Yankees baseball and the Beatles. And it's like, no, nobody needs a meetup to organize you around the Beatles. Like everybody's a fan of the Beatles and there's no stigma to me going to the, to the store or to a bar saying to someone, hey, are you a Beatles fan? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I like them, they're fine or I love them or whatever but they don't judge me because of the question. It's yeah. very different than me walking up to someone and saying, hey, are, do you happen to be a witch? It's like, <laughs> it's like what's wrong with you? Yeah. But the witches are out there in mass and they're looking for each other. So providing that safe spot for the witches or the vampires or the ghost hunters or the slash dot nerds or whatever to come together is pretty powerful. I think it's interesting to look at meet up now and think of it as so mainstream but actually you're right it's all those underserved people who didn't have a, a place to go that yeah. you so obviously you left in 2007 after six years and then you founded bark in 2011 so what did you do in between did you think you were done for good with startups <laughs> i sort of thought i was done for good uh, <laughs> at least in building i helped out a friend for a little while or he he sort of he sort of conned me into helping him for a little while on his startup. So initially I wasn't doing anything. I ran a marathon. I was sitting at home and he did this wonderful thing where he, he said to me, it makes me sad that you're sitting at home every day. I'm starting this new thing. I don't want you to work on it, but could you just not sit at home alone anymore? Can you come into the office every single day? Just sit here, answer your emails here, go to lunch with people on the team, whatever. And he said, over the weekend, send me a number, like how much you want me to pay you every week to come in. I'll pay you a dollar a week. I'll pay you $10,000 a week. Whatever in the number, just send it to me. I'll pay you because I don't want you to be sad. I was like, well, I'm not sad, but okay. So I, I sent him a number and I started to show up every day. And then pretty soon I'm like part of the team and I have responsibilities. And I was never hired. Here I am. That's the smartest acquisition. Pick a serial entrepreneur. Like they just can't resist. Did you yeah. yourself sat there and just kind of interjecting when you heard stuff? No, no, no. I, I got a, he gave me an office and I went in there to do my own thing and just ignore people. And they would walk in and ask me questions. I mean, sure, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. And then all of a sudden I'm being invited to meetings and pretty soon I have a job. I didn't want a job. So he, he's a great friend and I appreciate the nudge, but I helped him out for a little while. And then I came across the job posting with a venture capital firm. This was Polaris Ventures and they were looking for someone to, 
run their Dog Patch Labs location in New York City. Mm-hmm. And Dog Patch is an amazing concept of we will host about 20 companies, one to three person companies, host them for free, don't take equity, no rent, no nothing. Six months, just here's a beautiful space and a lot of amenities and a lot of smart people around you to, to get your idea kicked off. And it was for me to choose the people who came into the space and then help them however I could take off. So it was awesome. I get to work with 20 companies and help and then go home and sleep well at night. And I get paid very well. And I basically have no responsibility whatsoever, which was amazing. But when I saw the job posting, I sent them a note saying, I don't exactly know what this job is. And I'm probably not the right person for it. But if you wanted to talk more about it, I might, I might talk to you, but I don't think it's really a great fit for me. <laughs> and they emailed the next day and said, you're the only person who didn't pitch us really hard on why it's perfect for you. So <laughs> would you like the job? Like, well, I don't know what it is, though. <laughs> One of the things that was really appealing as I talked to them about what it was, was I'd have to do things like this. I'd have to meet a new entrepreneur basically every hour and hear their business and talk to them and be engaging and go to events and go to conferences. That's not me. Prior to that, I was a shut-in. I just wanted headphones and an Excel spreadsheet and leave me alone. I was a shut-in. So I took it as an opportunity to force myself into a situation of, I have to engage with people now. I'm going to have to learn how to do this. I have to learn how to walk on a stage and talk to a crowd. And there's no choice. It's my job now. So figure it out. So that was part of the appeal was pushing me out of my comfort zone. Forced growth. Yeah, rapid fire. So you were not still looking to become a founder. You were definitely adamant that you didn't want to do another startup. It's exhausting. You're sleeping well at night, at least now. But then along came Bark. Yes. How did Bark come about when you were adamant it wasn't going to? Yeah, you're right. I I mean, the the dog patch job, that is the greatest job in the world. It, It really is where you get to work with brilliant people every day and help them on their ideas. Venture capital is quite the life. You're paid very well. You have very little responsibility. You get exposed to a lot of great people. I loved it. I had no thought of leaving. I was like, I'll just sit here and do this forever. This is great. And then I, and then a couple of things happened on the venture capital side. I was seeing a lot more commerce businesses and I've never worked in one. So I didn't understand how it worked. Just, I I kind of felt stupid in a lot of the conversations and I wanted to learn more. The other thing that happened was this guy. Those of you who can't see Hugo, what breed is Hugo? He's a great Dane. He's asleep right now. He came into my life and I'm obsessed. So I just wanted to make him happy. Those two ideas sort of collided and we started it. I told you sort of the initial, how did we learn if this was a good idea? But I thought... I'll serve a hundred dogs. I'll learn a little bit. We'll have a fun little business on the side and I'll keep my day job. And I guess, fortunately, it turned out very well. (laughs) It went another direction. You're listening to Venture Out with me, Hattie Willis, and this week's special guest, Matt Meeker, founder of Meetup and Bark. If you're enjoying, please do take a minute at the end to like, share and subscribe so you never miss another episode. But for now, keep listening and I hope you enjoy. 
it's interesting that you say that you didn't know much about e-commerce before. So it was all learning on the job? Yeah, there were there were a lot of elements I didn't understand. And some, I think I, I understand most of them now. I just, some I'm closer to than others. Luckily, we have really great people and things like fulfillment and operations and supply chain. So I trust them quite a bit. But they're complex businesses. They're really, really hard to do. And direct-to-consumer when you're making all the products and running that all the way through to serving the customer and building ongoing relationships, man, it's, it's hard. We have a, we have a board member that says commerce is easy. You just have to be perfect at everything. (laughs) And it's really true. It all has to be very much in balance all the time. So yes, I've learned quite a bit. And you chose and have stuck with what to some would be a niche, which is dogs. But what are the benefits of sticking so closely to one? What would you call them? I would call them the customer for sure. The the dogs are. I think the benefit of it is, well, I don't know another way to do it. Bark was formed for that guy over there and continues to be, at least for me, like he's the motivation for it and the, the direction for it. So it wasn't going through a list of like really big addressable market opportunities and saying, oh, there's a big one. Let's let's go after that. It's very much about serving the need of a dog and trying to make them happy. And we are dog people. We love dogs. That's who we want to serve. That's the customer. For me, it's very disingenuous to say, well, let's do it for cats too, just mm-hmm. because maybe they occupy the same aisle in a, in a Target store. It's a different customer. It's a different relationship. We talk about the dog is your child. The cat is like a roommate. Um, <laughs> you might have a little bit of interaction with each other. You live in the same spot, but it's a roommate. And I know people love their cats. I just don't. <laughs> so it's very hard for me to serve them. Very hard for me to connect and be authentic. I think sometimes it can be a double-edged sword when you are your own customer. How easy or hard has it been? Do you always just go with you? Know, what would Hugo want, your own gut? Or do you have to do a lot of customer research to try and understand other dog parents are different to you? They're all different. Um, it, yeah, I think the common core um, between all of us is that we really, really care about our dogs and we want to make them happy and we want the best for them. But I've been surprised a few times along the, the journey at first, I was surprised at where I thought I was just one of those weirdos who was obsessed with his dog. And it turns out there are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of us worldwide who feel the same, who feel like that's our child and we, we'd do anything for them. So that was surprise number one. And the next big thing we learned, though, is where he has very unique and special needs, like he's a big guy and he lives in New York City where he's not very well catered to because he's so big. And now he's 10 and a half years old. So he's all gray and he's a senior and he's got joint and arthritis issues. He's got a sensitive stomach to some, to some foods or treats. They all have that. And that all those needs change throughout their lives. So they're all very unique. And so the approach of we made three bags of dog food and put them in the aisle for you to come pick them, like that's outdated. That's not good enough. Uh, my dog is different. You, you can't squeeze him into one of these three bags or assortments. I believe he deserves someone who listens to his needs and the type of dog he is and looks at that from every angle and says, all right, here's the right meal plan for you. This is where you'll be the healthiest. And we've got the capability of doing that. 
So is everyone else at Bark, is it a prerequisite before you start that you have to be a dog owner? Not a dog owner. Uh, <laughs> if you're not when you start, the pressure is pretty high, but you definitely have to be obsessed. You've spoken already about the business now today being so complex because you have supply chain and manufacturing, product design, but you started actually with not designing your own products that came a bit later and it was it's a really interesting move because you started I think with lots of different suppliers and then made the move I think within a year less than a year to designing and getting manufactured your own products was that because you didn't think there were good enough products out there or was it because actually it gets better lock-in and retention for customers who then can't go and buy you on Amazon yeah it's it's much more the latter we did start with third-party products and worked with a lot of great suppliers and um, there's a no pun intended but a very long tail of people making great products for dogs so we we started that way and we were curating individual boxes for dogs around those products we'd get feedback from our customers about the products and we try to be responsive to it. After a little bit of time, we had suppliers coming to us because we had enough scale and saying, we made this just for the box. We thought that was great. It's like, great, we'll put that in. That continued and we had enough feedback from our customers where we could look at something they're bringing and say, it's okay, but can you change this, this, and this? And then we got to a place of, you know what, just move aside. We'll just design it ourselves. This is too slow. We need to be responsive to them right away. So we brought the design in-house and started to be have a more direct com conversation with our customer about it. And then when you start to branch out into all the different unique needs, it just makes that design even more complex. A normal toy company will produce 15 to 20 new toys this year. We'll produce 600. So we have a huge amount of velocity and we get so much feedback and learning from every one of those that it just, I, I think, sets us apart. The other thing it seems really from the outside key for is the subscription model. See, you're monthly getting new toys, new treats. It has to be new and exciting. I saw on the website you do really fun themed boxes. You've got a very autumnal one at the moment. I've seen Halloween ones in the past. So how key are the themes for getting the subscription and keeping the retention? The, the themes are huge. We didn't have that when we started, and it, it really changed the experience from, uh, I think, more of a, a replenishment thought of, well, let me get a new toy and a new bag of treats and a new chew for my dog in a replenishment way to more of an experience of Scooby-Doo movies coming out in May, and everything in this is around that movie. We're excited to watch the movie. We're excited to see these toys and share them with our dog. They're cool. They're like a character that we know, or there, there's definitely an energy between the person and the dog. And when you've connected with the person around a theme or, or a concept that makes them light up, it makes the dog more excited about like, what is that? Give it to me. Like, what are we doing here together? Instead of like, oh, here's another toy. Here you go. And again, it's just so clear that you've got so, in, you, when you are the customer, there's such a different way of thinking about that connection between the dog and the dog parent, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's not much uh, There's not much in the world that you can do with your dog. You can go for a walk, you can go to the park, but there aren't many shared activities. And so if we can bring 
30 or 60 minutes a month in your life of something something different you can do with your dog then we want to do that you've expanded now beyond just the subscription model because people were getting so sad that they didn't get specific toys in their subscription they actually wanted to be able to buy extra toys is that right yep there's people who want to complete collections uh so we we have that we have products available um on our bark shop and also amazon to some extent amazon tends to be like uh the the real old favorites uh things that that really take off and people want ongoing and then we have different sometimes overlapping but different collections in our retail partners like target and petco PetSmart, costco costco's got a, a really hot one right now which is we've taken all the items from their food court and made them into toys. So like a slice of pizza and a hot dog and a soda. And uh, so we, we've stolen from the Costco food court and made, made an assortment that's going really well. And how much do customers move between the different channels? Do they tend to be quite fluid? Do they go and look for all the different toys in the different stores? How does it work? No, they, they don't. They tend to be siloed. And that's, that's a bit of, our design as well of why we, why we've pushed into retail and why we've pushed into Amazon and the other channels is customers are comfortable buying where they want to buy. Mm. And so it's not for us to try and say to someone who's paid whatever it is, hundred dollars for Amazon prime for the year, like don't buy at prime or at Amazon, come over here and buy. It's like, all right, so you've invested there and you want your fast shipping it's up to us to put our product there and get it in front of you. Just talking briefly about retention, because I think one of the things that people often get wrong with subscription models is specific people who aren't running them. I think when you run it, you, you obviously know this, but when you're not running one, you think it's all about acquisition. How many new customers can yeah. I get? But actually when you're running one, you know that the main number you have to be looking at is retention and churn, because that's, yeah. that's what will kill you, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's a model maker or breaker for sure. What are your numbers at at the moment? September is the best month we've, I dare say, ever had. And we've improved every month throughout the year. So we're in a really great spot right now. September is probably about 95% as we'll close it out. That's on a monthly basis. So yeah, we're, we're in very good shape. That's incredible. And so I want to come back to the pig story because I think... Yeah. This holds a clue into why your retention is so high. <laughs> you just genuinely care so much about your customers. So, so what did a pig teach you about serving customers? So the story happens to be a true story, not just a myth. We have a team in Ohio called our happy team. They are customer support, but they're given a tremendous amount of latitude. They can do just about anything to make a customer happy. And early on, we were serving just a few unique needs in a dog. So we started with size. We offered three assortments a month, small, medium, and large, large for Hugo. And that grew as we would hear the same sort of feedback many, many times. We'd have to hear it a lot for us to create a new assortment. Something like the most obvious one that's out there as a separate brand now is Super Chewer. My dog destroyed your stuff in five minutes. I need more durable items. But we were in a place where we would wait until we had 
at least 5,000 people who were interested in a new assortment before we would start to cater to it or to build for it. So the famous story is someone called our happy team and said, we love your box. We actually subscribe for a pig and our pig loves your toys. Our pig loves your treats. We enjoy it every month, but there's one problem. This month you sent pork treats and that's a problem for us. We immediately understood that. And the person on our happy team where we didn't have a, an assortment built that was like, don't send pork to this dog or this pig. So this person made a note and said, what I'll do is every month I will assemble a box here at my desk for you, address it myself and send it off to you to ensure you don't get pork treats. So they, they wrote a post-it and put it on their wall to do that. Word got around and one person became nine people. The happy team kind of came up with a motto called no dog left behind. So whatever they asked for, we will do if we have to do it ourselves. And by the time I found out about it, I, I was on a trip out there and I see this assembly line going of people putting boxes together, but we have warehouses. I was like, what, what is going on? What are you guys doing? And they, they told us about it. By that time, it was about a thousand customers. First, like, you all are crazy. But then we quickly saw that's where the customer need was. So it wasn't for us to shut it down. It was for us to organize our supply chain and our fulfillment and our technology and our data collection, everything behind where they had less. And that's had a, just a meaningful lift to our retention and our, our relationship with a customer. So you have the happy team who obviously really connected. How much would you as the founding team keep talking to customers and keep that in your minds when you're developing, you know, where to, for instance, who to partner with next, where are they shopping? Not as much as I'd like. <laughs> we do things to try and keep connected. So my co-founder Carly is building our food product right now. And she probably talks to more customers every day than than any of us really hearing about that experience on a smaller scale, but you know, 20, 30 people a day. Henrik and I do this thing where if a customer is with us for three or more years and then cancels their subscription, we just send them an email and we really send it. That just says like, Hey, we, we noticed you just canceled your subscription. You've been with us for four years now and just want to say thanks. We really appreciate it. There's not a win back effort there. They're like, can I offer you $10 to try it again or anything like that? It's just a, a thank you. That typically one in three people will respond. And sometimes they share like what the problem was. Sometimes they just say, thanks, it's been a great run and we really enjoyed the product. Sometimes they will say, I know this is an automated message and you didn't really send it. It's like, yeah, uh, I did, <laughs> but okay. But that's one way of sort of keeping connected to customers. Our customers are everywhere though. They're in the parks. I see them every day with, with Hugo. Coming back, I, I guess, more broadly than Bark again, you are very good at this. You're also very humble about it, but you are very good at starting startups that succeed. And I know it's very trite to, to try and reduce your success down to a few things. But are there things that you think are attributable to why you've been able to start two really successful companies? And they're very different companies as well. Yes, they are. <laughs> That's nice of you. I think some of it is, probably a lot of it is luck. At its core with both, I think one common thing is I have great co-founders and they bring, they bring skills and capabilities that, that I, I'll never have. So 
I don't know exactly what it is I bring. I know what they bring and I couldn't, I couldn't do it without, without either of those groups, just finding the right people to work with and thinking of it as we're going to be working together for 10 years here. So we better like each other. Like really, really, uh, I love those people and they're super talented. And I think as we've gone on too, we've attracted really great people around this time every year, we have an offsite for our leadership team. And I was looking at the photo on Instagram of one that was like three years ago. And there were 17 of us, I think in the photo and all 17 people are still in the company. So we, we love working together. They're very talented people. I don't want to put a percent, but a very high percentage of this is get the right people working on it with you. For me, I know this isn't universal, but for me, the idea or the customer you're serving, it's got to be personal. It's got to connect. Like It's got to matter to you, again, because you're going to have to do this for 10 years or longer and really, and really, really care. And if you don't care, that'll come across. So I know some people can start companies in, in areas that it just doesn't matter to them. It's just another company. And that's, that's awesome. Not for me. And then you have to be willing to adapt. You can't be in love with your idea or your, your methods or approach or tactics or any of that. You have to expect and be very okay with this just isn't working. Let's move on to the next thing. Able to discard it, leave it behind that didn't work. I know it was my idea and I loved it and I pounded the table. It's over. We're done. Moving on. I don't know what that's called. Detachment. But I think I've been more more lucky than, than anything. So I think last time we joked briefly that you weren't going to do this forever. And that was a year ago. But you, you have now stepped down as CEO, <laughs> executive chairman. So theoretically, you'll have a little bit more time. Have you got any idea what you're going to be doing with that time? I think last time we spoke... As a side hobby, you were helping design a car for Great Danes. <laughs> uh, that's a business hobby. No, it's funny because a year ago when we talked about it, I had just hired a search firm to find a new CEO. And you see how long that took. So I had an inkling of where that was going. He just started. Right now, it's not freeing up any more time for me. It's I'm busier than ever. But I intend to stay in the company for quite a while and intend to do the stuff I really like, which is talking to customers and making products for them and bringing those out into the world. The CEO role, especially as we're, we're on the doorstep of being a public company, doesn't allow for that. That's five, 10% of my time. Yeah. And so being able to hand that to someone else to, so I can work on the fun stuff is probably what I'll be doing for a while. Amazing. And I have to ask this because my job is building new ventures. Is there anything you think uh, you, you might go to next and I can look at it before you and we can start a venture there? No, I've told you. this is It's too much work. It's too hard. No, don't okay. do this to me. Well, watch this space. I predict in six months we'll see. I encourage you and I'm very happy for you. <laughs> go for it. I'm here to answer any questions you, you'd ever want to. You want to talk about ideas? Let's do that. But I want to sleep at night. Oh, I feel like you've said that before. I have a suspicion you're one of those entrepreneurs who can't put it down if they want to. But uh, we'll see. I'll try my best. <laughs> a reformed entrepreneur. <laughs> Failed entrepreneur over and over. <laughs> That's definitely not the definition we'll go with, seeing as they're both doing quite well. But, uh, but hopefully this gives you some more time with Hugo as well. And very, yeah. very, very grateful that you joined us today and shared the stories because they are 
brilliant and genuinely inspiring. So thank you so much again, Matt. Yeah, thank you. It was great to talk to you again. I hope you enjoyed listening to Venture Out as much as we enjoyed making it. If you did, please do take a minute to like, share and subscribe so more people can find the podcast. And I hope to see you again next time. Thank you.